Luke chapter 2 in your Bible today, and we're into this Christmas season pretty, pretty far now, so um, we'll turn our thoughts that way. Luke chapter number 2, a chapter that's so familiar, some of you can quote it probably, but I'm only going to read beginning here about verse 7 and go down through verse number 11, 7 through 11. Stand with me, if you will, please, as we read God's Word together. And so she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid, very afraid. The angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And I emphasize the last part of verse 11, a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And you may be seated. Thank you. The sermon today is the Lordship of Christ, the Lordship of Jesus Christ. In verse 11, I called your attention to it, but we will, I'll do so again. The angel referred to the babe lying in the manger as a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Because this is so familiar to us, we can read over that and not comprehend all that's being said and inferred here. I call your attention to the word Savior. The word Savior means a deliverer, the one who is going to deliver. And of course, it's referring to Christ's humanity, the fact that He is a man. And then a Savior who is Christ. Christ of the New Testament is Messiah of the Old Testament. The Hebrew word is Messiah. The Greek word is Christos or Christ. So you have Old Testament Messiah and New Testament Christ. You also have a translation of the word Lord in the Old Testament, which is Jehovah, and translated in our English Bible as Lord with a capital L. And so what you have here in this term a Savior who is Christ the Lord. You have Christ's humanity, the fact that He's a man, a perfect man, who is the anointed one of God, the Messiah who was prophesied and shall come. Now He comes, and then you have the Lord, His deity, Jehovah God, God come to the earth. Now, I'll focus on the word Lord today. The message is the Lordship of Jesus Christ. What did the angel have in mind? What did he mean when the angel said, Christ who is the Lord? Because the word Lord has so many meanings and a lot of confusion about the word Lord, and it's an extremely important word. You need to understand it in your Christian vocabulary. For example, the Bible says that Sarah called Abraham 
her husband, she called him Lord. You remember that? I've been talking to Norma about that, (laughs) and I can't get much response from her, to be honest. She's yet to call me Lord Bill, I'll tell you that. But at any rate, I don't know what Abraham had, but he had a good thing going, didn't he? To have his wife call him Lord. If you lived in England, they called bishops in the Anglican, Anglican church, Lord Bishop. They don't think he's God. They think it's a title of respect. In the past, kings were called Lord, and even royalty were lords. The upper house of parliament in England today is called the House of Lords. But we don't mean by that that they are gods in any sense. It's a term of high respect. In John chapter 4, Jesus is talking with the woman at the well, and she called him sir about four different times, a term of respect, of course. However, if you look that up, In the original language, she used that same word that's translated Lord in other places. So sometimes it's translated as a term of respect. Sometimes it is a term referring to him as deity. In medieval times, the owner of the manor or the castle was called the Lord of the manor, a term of ownership. He owned that castle and all the lands around it, and the vassals came and worked that property, and they referred to him as the Lord. Servants and slaves referred to their master or owners as Lord throughout history. And we come to our Bible, and the word Lord is used in a different way. It's used of God. Lord in our Bible usually means deity. Even the pagans in the past who worshiped idols referred to their idol gods, the little images before which they knelt. They referred to them as their Lord. And so it's a term that has a lot of different meanings, but here's one thing that's common in all of them. In every usage, the word Lord is an acknowledgement of respect. It refers to supremacy It refers to the fact that someone is the owner, and the person who is not the owner refers to the owner as the Lord, and it always has in it the idea of authority. The person who is called Lord has authority that is being recognized by the person who speaks to them. And so the angel announced to those shepherds that night, you go and look in that manger over in Bethlehem, less than a mile away, in that barn that we just talked about. And if you'll look there, the person who is born is the anointed Messiah that the prophets have been speaking of for centuries. He is the Savior who is going to come and save us from our sins. And thirdly, He is the Lord Jehovah, he is the God-man, a man who is 100% man, but at the same time, 100% God as well. I read today often, and I hear in the news, references to the masters of the universe, and they're usually referring to Zuckerberg and Bill Gates and Elon Musk and people that have accumulated these vast, vast stores of wealth. 
And so they have so much money, they can do anything they want. With that money has come great power. And so now they're referring to this elite class of wealthy, wealthy individuals. They refer to them as the masters of the universe. Well, they're not. Steve Jobs was one of them, and he died about two or three years ago. He was in that classification of the lords of the universe, but he still died. They're not the masters of the universe. Let me tell you about the master of the universe. They're just one, and his name is the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? Don't think of that word Lord as a church word. It's terminology we throw around here. When we talk about Jesus as being Lord, it's not part of our imagination or just a theological term, though it is that. When we use the word Lord, it's a reality. And that's what I want to drive home to you today. Jesus Christ really, truly is the master of the universe. He is the Lord of lords as well as the King of kings. He's called Lord in the Bible, number one today, 747 times in the authorized King James Version of the New Testament. 747 times he's Lord. The Greek word is kurios. And it's translated, as I said, in different ways, meaning Lord or Master or Owner or even Sir. To the Jew, he was Jehovah, though. He was the Jehovah God, the Lord, the God-man. I hear Christians today make terms like, uh, say things like this. You need to make Jesus the Lord of your life. I try not to say that. It's too late to say that. He's already the Lord. He's the Lord whether you make Him the Lord of your life or whether you submit to Him or not. He is Lord is my point. And He's Lord no matter what I do with Him or how I relate to Him. He is the Lord. Let me illustrate that throughout a number of Bible illustrations. In Colossians chapter number 1 and verse 16, you might want to turn there because this is really a very, very important verse of Scripture. And I don't think the general public, you may, but the general public certainly doesn't understand that Jesus Christ was, in fact, the creator of this universe. Colossians chapter number 1 and verse number 16, for by him were all things, all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities, we're talking about government positions now, or powers, all things were created by him and for him. Note that phrase, all things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. The word consist has the idea of they're being held together, they're being sustained. 
Someone said, if Jesus Christ took his hand off of the earth and the universe, it would fly apart. Every atom would go in its direction, every molecule in its direction, and there would be no cohesion. There would be no order. Everything would disintegrate if Jesus Christ were not, were not sustaining the universe that he created even to this day. So we would say then he's Lord by virtue of his ownership and his creation, his, his creation power. He is Lord of creation. I'd also remind you he's Lord of nature. Do you remember when it was at the Passover and they were preparing and Jesus said to the, to the disciples, go into the next village and get a colt. The colt is unbroken. Nobody's ever sat on him and bring him to me. And then they brought the colt and Jesus Christ got up on the back of an unbroken colt. Don't you ever try that. But Jesus Christ rode that colt into town, that animal recognized the Lord, the Lordship of Christ, his power over nature, over, he's the, he is the Lord of the animal kingdom as well. He's the Lord of the birds. And do you remember he, at his crucifixion, he said to Peter, Peter, you will deny me three times before that rooster ever crows. And the rooster crowed at the beckon of the Lord of the fowls of all the birds on the earth. He's the Lord of nature. Do you remember they were in the sea and it was stormy and the disciples thought they were going to go down under the waves? And Jesus Christ spoke and said, peace be still. And the waves ceased, the Bible says. He's Lord, the master of nature. He is the authority over animals. He is the ruler over the birds. He's the master of the fish. Even the fish recognize his lordship. Do you remember? They said, we have a tax bill, Lord. How are we going to pay it? We don't have any money. And Jesus said, go catch a fish. And when you find the fish, there will be a coin in his mouth. Use it to pay the taxes. He's lord. Did you Think of that the minnows and the fish swimming around in the oceans and in, in, in the rivers and lakes, they know, they recognize the Lord of glory. He is Lord of all. He's the Lord over disease, and the New Testament recounts scores of people that were sick, and they came to him, and he healed them. In fact, John said he healed so many people that it would take all the books of the world and we could fill them up with the accounts of the wonderful deeds of healing. He is the Lord over disease. He's the Lord over death. He stood in front of a grave one day and said, Lazarus, come forth. A man who had been dead for four days got up and walked out of that tomb. He is the master of the authority over death. He is the Lord over devils all through the Gospels. He's casting out the demons that possess people and destroy their lives. He is the Lord over the church. I read in Ephesians chapter 5 that Jesus Christ is the head of the church. And one of the most glorious of all thoughts about his lordship is in the book of Philippians. It says that one day every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's Lord. 
Think of all the things I've said. The Lord of creation, the master of nature, the authority over the animals. He rules over the birds. He's the master over the fish. He has, he's the Lord of disease, the Lord over death, the Lord over the devil, the Lord over the church, and the Lord over the living who will one day confess him as Lord and Savior in Jesus Christ. I think I ought to hear an amen on that. The early, the early Christians understood lordship. The Roman Empire, where Christianity was born and conceived, during the time of Jesus, the Roman Empire was polytheistic. Poly, many, many gods. And there were multitudes of religions. Many gods and goddesses were worshipped by the Romans. And so the government didn't really care at a point who you worshipped or if you worshipped. They were a bunch of pagan atheists for the most part. But to keep the population happy, they built this big, gorgeous building, and you can still see it in Rome. It's there today. It's the best-preserved building of the antiquities in Rome. It's the, panth uh, the part, uh, Pantheon. Pan, meaning every, and Theon, God, a, a building for every god, every god. And it's a beautiful marble, granite building built to last. And when you go in it, or when you went in it in those days, there was a little niche, a little alcove, if you will. And every religion brought their symbol or their image or their idol of their God, and they put it in the little niche. And so you could take a little tour through the Pantheon, and what you would see would be all of these different religions represented in the Roman Empire, all these different gods and goddesses. And the main one was Zeus, or Jupiter, they called him. He was the most powerful. He was the main god. They referred to him, what? Lord Zeus. That term for any deity, Lord. And so the people there worshiped all these different gods. And then the Jews and the Christians came along, and they felt differently about their god. And the Romans came to them and said, wouldn't you like a niche for Jesus? We'll put a picture or a statue of Jesus up here, and, and he will be one of the gods worshipped here in the Roman Empire. And the Christians said, oh, no, no, no. You see, he is not one of the gods. He is God. And they claimed an exclusiveness for that reason. And that, of course, was offensive to the Romans. Boy, they didn't like that. You're putting down all these other religions? You think you're the only one that has the truth? And the Christians said, well, we do. He said he was the way, the truth, and the life. And yes, we're not going to put Jesus up there with all the other gods and make him one of many. He is the Lord of lords. And so the Christians began to be persecuted because that was so exclusive or so offensive, of course, to the Romans. Today, you know, it's much the same. Have you noticed? We live in this pluralistic society, and if you want to make somebody mad, you just make an exclusive claim for Jesus Christ. You say something like, Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. 
Oh, boy, that will incense people. They, don't, they think you're being so narrow-minded. You're bigoted. If you make a claim that your Lord is the only way to heaven, well, what about all these other people on the earth? And you can get into an argument real quickly there, and it can get very heated, of course. People will, they will not agree with you in the main. Now, so that was the circumstances in the Roman Empire. In about 44 B.C., before Jesus was born, the state decided it would have its own religion. And so they, they began to worship the emperor. And they put statutes of the emperor all over the empire. And uh, they said, the emperor is God. Now, the people really didn't believe he was God in the sense of a higher power. They knew that emperors came and went. They knew that emperors got sick, emperors died. They knew that the emperor was not a god in the, in the, in the real sense, but he was a symbol of the state. And he was a symbol of the authority and power of Rome. And so they declared an annual day once each year. And I've told you this many times, but it's so important. You would go, every citizen was required to go before a little statue of Caesar, take a pinch of incense, put it on a little fire, and say these words, Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. Well, the Christians said, we have a problem with that. We can't say that Caesar is Lord. That would be to elevate Caesar to the same level or greater than our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. We can't say that. Well, some Christians said, oh, I can say it. I'll just check my mind out. It doesn't mean anything anyhow. It's a civil religion. I mean, I'll put the piece of in, I'll, I'll put the pinch of incense there in the fire. I'll say, Caesar's Lord, and I know I don't mean it, and God knows I don't mean it, and everybody else knows I don't mean it, but I'll do it and get them off my back. A lot of Christians like that today. I'll compromise. You know, it's not from the heart. I'm just going to do it. I'm going to go through the motion to satisfy whatever I need to satisfy. And there were other Christians who said, nope, never will it come through my lips that anybody is Lord except Jesus Christ. And you know, people died for that. People suffered for that. There was all kinds of implications of that small civil act that, that the Christians refused to participate in. In fact, you know what they call the Christians? Interesting. They called them atheists because they didn't believe in the Caesar God, and they were labeled as atheists, and yet they were wonderful, wonderful Christian people. Now, why am I laying this out in such detail to you today? Because it's one of the most relevant things a preacher could preach on right now. It goes beyond doctrine. It becomes very, very relevant to your life in this way, that Jesus Christ is Lord of salvation. Jesus Christ, number one, is Lord of salvation. And what do I mean by that? Well, to truly understand salvation, you have to know who he is. 
And I think sometimes we talk to people about their soul and we try to witness to them and share the gospel. We didn't stop and help them understand just who is it that we're talking about when we talk about Jesus. We're not talking about that picture on the postcard. We're not talking about that figure on the Christmas card that we'll get in our mail this year. We're not talking about just a man. We're talking about the absolutely most unique human being who ever lived who was 100% God, 100% man, who came from outer space, from heaven, to live on the earth, to be born in a barn, in a filthy manger, through the miracle of a virgin birth, this God became human flesh, lived a perfect life, died on the cross for the sins of every human being who would ever be born on the planet, who after his death three days later raised was raised from the dead by God and lives today at the right hand of God to make intercession for his people. He has made more difference in history than anyone else, maybe more than everyone else. When I write the date, December the 11th, 2022, I just acknowledge that 2,022 years ago, this, this one came from heaven and he split history in two. Everything before him is B.C., everything after him is A.D. Nobody else has ever affected history like that. And we ought to explain to people, we're talking about God, the God-man. The only one who could say, and people wouldn't laugh, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He had to be a man to die. If he were just God, he wouldn't have died. God can't die. For him to be a substitute for our sins, though, he had to be a perfect man. He could not have died for my sin if he had sin of his own. And so he had to be the sinless, perfect man. For sin to be forgiven, he had to have blood. Because without the shedding of blood is no remission of sin. He was the Lamb of God, and that meant that he had to die a violent, sacrificial, bloody death. Who else has done that for others? The Savior also had to be God. Because one man would not have had the power to save an infinite number of people. Only God had the infinite value to be able to pay for the sins of an infinite number of people who were all sinners. He had to be a God who cared. If he didn't care, he could have let the world perish and he could have let everybody die and pass away. But he was a God of love, a God of grace, a God of mercy. 
And when I talk about the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm talking about the one who gave up the glories of heaven, the ivory palaces we sing about, and came to the earth to live as a carpenter, a poor man in a little backwater village who was born in a filthy stable. All of that was love that he poured out and sacrificed for you and me. Wonder of wonders. Can you imagine standing there that night looking into that manger in Bethlehem, God in a cradle? What irony. And eight days later, they take him to the temple to be circumcised, to write. And an old man is there who's been waiting for years for him, and God has revealed he's not going to die until he holds in his hands the Lord Jesus, and he picks up that little eight-day old baby. He cradles him in his arms, and what does he say? Lord, let me depart now. I'm ready to die because mine eyes have seen your salvation. Salvation is a person. You can put your eyes upon him and look at the person of Jesus Christ. He is the Lord that saves. He is the Lord who saves. And if you're here today and you've never been saved, you can come to Him and you can say, I believe you are Lord, you're Jehovah God, the perfect man, the God of grace. And you can say, Lord, I believe you died for my sins personally. And you rose from the grave. And now, Lord, I receive your gift of eternal life by faith. I trust you fully. I depend upon you wholly. I'm not looking to my, mora my morality, my good deeds. I'm not looking to my baptism, my membership, my, my reading the Bible, my church work. Lord, there's one thing I'm trusting in. You for my eternal soul, and, I, and that's you, and what you did for me at Calvary. I receive that gift now. And the Bible calls salvation a gift. It's not anything you earn. My wife gives me a Christmas gift. I don't say, how much do I owe you for it, Norma? No. It would be an insult. It's an act of love. It's a statement of concern and affection for me. And God earns salvation, and He gives it. He offers it to the world. It's His gift. No strings attached. I don't have to make Him any promises to get it. Lord, if you give me salvation, I'll live for you every day. Uh -uh. It's a gift. It's a gift of grace. Grace means I don't deserve it. My, what wonder when you think about it. He is the Lord of our salvation, but now that you're saved, let me tell you something else. He's the Lord of your life. Lordship, His Lordship refers to His authority in my life. A Lord has authority. There are no lords without authority no matter how you define the term. 
lords are owners in almost every case. And certainly in his case, the Bible says he created the heavens and the earth, and the Bible says the earth and the fullness thereof belong to him. And so he is the creator, the owner, and the authority over this universe. Now listen to me, Christian, because so many people don't understand this today. They just think that, you know, uh, they think I, after I pray a prayer and make a profession of faith, well, I can just do what I want to do. Listen to me carefully. When you trusted Christ, at that moment, you got a new master. You have a new boss if you're a Christian. And that's the best way to say it that I can think of. You have a new boss, and his name is Jesus. You see, when you were saved, you came under new ownership. Let me show you that in the Bible because it's so important. Go to 1 Corinthians with me, chapter 6. When you got saved, you got a new boss. You came under new ownership. And where does the Bible teach that? It teaches it in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. What? Know you not that your body is the temple, the place of dwelling of the Holy Ghost who is in you, which you have of God? And look at the last phrase. Maybe underline it. It is so important. You are not your own. Now, Americans are taught to have this independent attitude. I do what I want to do. I'm an American. I'm a free man or a free woman. Well, when you were saved, if you trusted Christ, you are not your own. And why are you not? Look in verse 20. You are bought with a price. What's the price that bought me? It's the precious royal blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that was shed at Calvary. It was his life, his suffering, his death that purchased my salvation. And I'm under new ownership. I have a new boss. His name is Jesus who purchased me with his red royal blood that day when he died for my sins. And because of that, I'm not my own. He's in charge. He's in charge of your life. This would be a different church, ladies and gentlemen. I tell you, a radically different church. If we were to buy into that one concept, we are not our own. We belong to Jesus. He's the boss now. You own a business? Jesus ought to be the boss. If you're a Christian, he is to be the boss. You have a family? Jesus should be the boss in that family. In every endeavor of life, if we could just learn to think biblically about that, you see, he is the Lord of my thought life. Am I thinking thoughts that the boss, the Lord, the master, the owner would not approve of? He is the master of my tongue. Oh, preach on that very long, Bill. That'll get everybody, won't it? He's the Lord of our tongue. He's the Lord of our temper. 
And I am going to pass quickly on that one because that's one of my problems. And he's the Lord of our talents. And if he gave us a talent, it belongs to him. And he is the Lord of our treasure, our money. And he's the Lord of our time. Every single minute of it belongs to him because we're not our own. And he's the Lord of our testimony, our reputation in the community. He is the Lord of our marriage. He's the Lord of our school, our educational pursuits. He is the Lord of life. Listen to me. I heard Adrian Rogers say this, and this is so profound. Adrian said, the last independent decision you will ever make is to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. The last independent decision you will ever make is to receive Jesus Christ. And from there on, he's the boss. He's the Lord. He's the master. Amen, church? Yeah, I like that statement so much. Now, turn with me to Romans chapter 6 in your Bible. Romans chapter 6 and verse 13. Paul's writing to these Roman Christians who knew all about this lordship thing, I tell you. And he said to them, listen, don't yield your members. Now, members now are your body parts. It's your, the parts of your body, hands and feet and eyes and ears and so on. Don't yield or give control over of your body as instruments of unrighteousness, of sinful deeds, but yield, positive, yourself to God as those who are alive from the dead. Like you have a new life. You've been born again. You're alive, and so you yield yourself over to the Lordship of Christ and your members as instruments of righteousness to Him. And continue, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law any longer. You're not trying to keep the Ten Commandments. You are under grace. And grace has just one obligation, and that is to love and please the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only obligation He's put upon us. Now, let me ask you a question. Is He Lord? Is He Lord? There's an old illustration that preachers have used, I've used. It's been worn out, but I'm going to do it one more time. <laughs> when you think of your life as a house and you receive the Lord Jesus Christ and you met him at the front door, we'll imagine, in your house, and Jesus opened the door and there you were and there he was and you said, come on in, Lord. That's salvation. And you're standing in the foyer. You know what? There's a whole house, and lordship means Jesus Christ gets the run of the house. There's not a place in that house that you don't invite him in. You treat him like family, and you say, Lord, there's the refrigerator, and right over there is the closet, and Lord, here's all the rooms of the house. You have free reign to come and go. Here's your key. Anytime you want to come and go, you, you're in charge. But you know what happens? We go along through life, and one day we decide, there's a closet back there. I don't want him to see some things in. And so I don't 
I put a new lock on that closet. And if I'm not careful, it has a way of repeating itself. And before long, Lord, you can't go here and you can't go there. That's not lordship. Lordship is, Jesus, you come in. In fact, this is your house, and you can do anything you want. You can tell me how to live in my own house. You have all authority. Is he your Lord? Are you seeking his will, Christian? Are you yielded to him, to use the terminology of Romans 13? There's a song that I love. And if I were in good voice, I'd try to sing it for you. But after you preach for 53 years, you don't, you're never in good voice. But here it is. When I was just a child, I heard the beautiful story. How you loved me, so you died on Calvary. And though I claimed you way back then as Lord Almighty, can I say, things haven't changed. My love's still the same. You're still Lord to me. Some have called you Lord, but now they serve another. To worldly things their hearts have pledged its loyalty. But as for me, when I made my choice, it was forever. And just as before, and even more, now, you're still Lord to me. You're still Lord. You're still my Father. In little or much, I still feel your touch. You're still Lord. You're still Lord. You're still my Father. You'll always be mine for all of time. You're still Lord. And that angel came that night and said to Mary, Mary, you're going to have a baby, and the baby's going to be the Son of God, the God-man, the Savior of the world. And here's what Mary, that little girl, said to that angel. My soul doth magnify the Lord, the soul, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. And you know what? There's the joy that we can all feel during this season. My soul magnifies him. He's the Lord. My spirit rejoices in him. He's my Savior. And I love him today, the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Our heads are bowed.